Welcome to the Dacus Report, hosted by Pacific Justice Institute founder and president Brad Dacus. For 25 years, PJI has counseled, represented, and defended people whose religious freedoms, parental rights, or sanctity of life have been obstructed or violated, all free of charge. We leave no one behind and level the playing field for Americans as they are subjected to the tyranny of the powerful. Now, here's Brad Dacus. Welcome to the Dacus Report. Thank you for tuning in. I'm Brad Dacus, president of the Pacific Justice Institute. Uh, on today's show, we're going to interview one of our attorneys out of our Florida office uh, to talk about some serious battles taking place uh, with regards to uh, religious freedom, the sanctity of human life, uh, and some possible actions by the governor of Florida that may have an impact for the rest of the country with other states possibly following suit. Uh, but first, uh, we're going to be talking to uh, one of our attorneys to discuss something very horrific that's being planned out uh, in Nevada. But before we do that, uh, folks, I'd just like to, to touch on something very important. Uh, people have contacted our office uh, regarding the, the bank crisis, uh, regarding uh, concerns whether or not they're going to lose their money. Should they take their money out of their bank account? Uh, you know, what should they do? Um, I just want to let you guys know just a couple of points I think that need to be taken to heart. First is the fact that if you have at least, uh, less than $250,000 in any bank account, um, that's backed by the government. It, the government may back up, may back um, amounts above that, possibly. We don't know that uh, for other banks. We just know it for SVB, but uh, and maybe some others. But if you have less than two hundred fifty thousand in one particular account in the bank, in your bank, um, or at a bank, then you're you're fine. If you have more than that, you might want to take some and put it in another bank account. Uh, that's number one. Number two is diversification is so important. So if you have your money actually sitting in a bank account, you're not getting any interest in this, folks. And the banks know that, uh, but you have the ability right now with the interest rates being where they are and the T-bill rate, uh, you can take that money and uh, put it into a, a, a short-term treasury bill mutual fund. Uh, it's, a, it's a great opportunity. You can get 4.5-5% interest with effectively zero risk because these are T-bills. These are the United States government. So they have to back them. It's short-term. You know, so I, I encourage you to, to look into that if you have money just sitting there in the bank, going to waste. And finally, I encourage you to, to talk to an investment advisor, investment counselor. I know we have one at Pacific Justice Institute that, I've, that we've used to manage our uh, reserves for our litigation to make sure it's not just sitting in a bank, not earning anything. And I, I personally uh, use the services. You want to talk to him or there, there's so many others across the country. Just make sure they're a certified financial planner. The bottom line is don't panic. Um, make sure you don't have more than 250000 in a bank account. If you do, diversify. And in terms of your investments, you want to diversify anyway, and you want to have someone to help you do that so you're not uh, just in, in one area. If you do stocks, do you know, domestic and international. Uh, maybe partner in a real estate fund, have some fixed income, uh, security, different options. Uh, just uh, make sure you, you don't panic. And that's why I'm addressing this now because I think Many people are panicking, taking out their money, putting it under their mattress. Not a good idea. Um, a lot of people are breaking into houses uh, with that understanding. So I encourage you not to, not to go that route. All right. To help me address something very serious taking place in Nevada, uh, we have with us here attorney Emily Mimnaw, who heads up our office there in Nevada. Welcome to the show, Emily. 
Hi, hi, Brad. So, Emily, I understand that Nevada is proposing, there's legislation, it's SB 239, and it's going to propose to legalize physician-assisted suicide. This isn't California, this is Nevada. Um, people like to think of Nevada as sort of a, at least a purple state, you know, with some level heads there. Uh, uh, the Nevada legislature is considering this bill. It, is, it, is that true? Did I mischaracterize it? Physician-assisted suicide? You did not mischaracterize it. In fact, it is even worse than that. It is really an assisted suicide bill, by which I mean the latest iteration of this bill, SB 239, as you point out, does not actually require the oversight of a licensed medical physician. I kid you not, lethal drugs can be provided to an individual without the oversight at any point of a licensed medical doctor. So, so it is an assisted suicide bill. Whoa, whoa, okay. It's bad enough physician-assisted suicide. You're saying this legislation would not even require a doctor to be present when someone is being given drugs to kill themselves? That, that, that is correct. They, they've taken out the word physician and replaced it with the word practitioner, which, which the bill defines to mean a nurse's, um, a physician's assistant or a, a nurse with an advanced practice nurse or a physician, but you don't need to have a doctor. So no doctor, no problem. Wow. Um, and this is p pending right now in, in Nevada. Uh, who can be given these lethal drugs? There are five, I would say, requirements, but only one of which is an objective standard, which is age. You must be 18 years old. Otherwise, the, the other four requirements, such as they are, are you need to have a terminal condition, you need to have voluntary or informed consent, you need to show that the person is competent, and you need to show that the person is not under undue influence or coercion. That's it. That's it. So there's not a requirement for months of or of professional counseling from a psychiatrist to analyze and assess uh, that's not required at all by this by the language uh, of this legislation no I, I suppose the closest you could get would be the competency requirement and that just requires that if the again not physician but practitioner says oh maybe this person isn't competent mind you this is the same person who is looking to prescribe these drugs but if they were to say maybe this person is incompetent, they just refer them to another to another practitioner. It does not trigger any type of you know required psychiatric or physician um, review. Yeah, um, but doesn't Nevada mandate suicide prevention for for kids in schools? Doesn't this completely go against what they already are telling kids? That is a great point, Brian. Because yes, and in the last legislative session, AB one one four required, mandated, no, no ifs, ands, or buts about it. In the state of Nevada, we require specific suicide prevention education starting in grade five and every single year from grade five, grade six, grade seven, all the way through grade 12. However, apparently this bill claims that when you turn 18, suddenly the state no longer has an interest in preventing suicide. And in fact, the state wants to now become a, you know, a sponsor, if we're talking about Medicaid, and funder of suicide assistance for individuals who may be vulnerable and are told they have a terminal condition. So talk about and about face in terms of, you know, spending year after year telling children, you know, these are reasons to avoid suicide. These are things you can do to um, help yourself if you find yourself in a challenging situation. You turn 18 and the state is looking to sponsor the provision of these lethal, deadly drugs. Yeah, this is, this is shocking. Now, they use the word terminal. 
So does that mean someone's going to, you know, schedule is, is probably going to be dead in a, in, a, in a few days? Is that, is that what they're looking at when they say terminal? They define, by, by which I mean the bill says that a terminal condition is one that is deemed likely to result in death within six months. Um, but again, a, a that is that's not you know a, a sure that there's no way to actually know if an individual is going to be you know dead within six months. And, and second, again, no physician actually is required to make this terminal diagnosis. The bill states that you need to have a practitioner, attending practitioner, the individual's practitioner. Again, could be a physician's assistant, determine and diagnose the individual with the terminal condition, and that needs to be confirmed by a second. Practitioner. Again, notice the absence of the word physician, licensed medical doctor. We are removing them from the equation because, in my opinion, unsurprisingly, most doctors want nothing to do with the dispensation and disbursement of debt in the form of drugs. So you have two practitioners, which may not be doctors, maybe nurses. That's all that's needed to say, yeah, we think they're going to be dead within six months. So... That's our determination. So go ahead and, and kill, help, let us help you kill you. Here's the drugs. Uh, you know, I know people personally that were supposed to be dead very fairly quickly in a matter of just a, a few months, and they didn't. Uh, one was my, my uncle, and he had stage four uh, cancer. And as it turns out, he was supposed to be dead in a few months. It was very bleak. You know what? He lived another 10 years, 10 years because of modern medical technology. Uh, he did you know, missionary work. And then uh, you know, I know someone else personally. And uh, in fact, she lived in Nevada. And she was told, you know, I've just got you know, a few months left. That's it. Looks like that's what it is. Well, guess what? Emily, there was a new drug out, a new treatment for cancer. And, and that bought her another three years on this earth. So those both would have been terminal based on this, this language. They both could have been killed. They would have easily been able like, to, be, to be dead and killed. And a lot of people uh, who are, ter- quote, terminally ill go through, have depression. Uh, they often uh, want to not be, quote, unquote, a burden to their loved ones. So I can see a lot of people being killed uh, killing themselves with the assistance of government, with the assistance of, of, of a nurse, somebody who's not trained and licensed. Uh, and this takes place to someone who's just, say, 18 years old who may already you know, have emotional issues or you know, hormonal issues, who knows what. So this is, is very, very bleak, very, very serious. Now let's look at the term ter- uh, voluntary. So what does it mean for someone to... Uh, be voluntary and informed? Well, that's another great question. And unfortunately, this bill doesn't really address it. It simply provides about a one-page form that the individual contemplating suicide uh, signs and says, I, I, I am, this is voluntary, I, I am informed. And again, when you're talking about how can you be fully informed about your terminal diagnosis when we know that those, you know, the diagnosis of, you know, six months is really a range, right? It doesn't mean that on, on month six, you're going to drop dead, right? On top of which, as you point out, Brad, if you are told that you have this life-threatening condition, imagine the range of emotions, the comfort, the counseling, the care that you actually need. And instead, doctors, are, doctors and non-doctors alike are being told that they should inform these individuals at, I would say, one of the most vulnerable, difficult moments of their life 
that they should consider and know that these, you know, lethal drugs are available to them. And with that, you know, all of the guilt an individual may be feeling if they're worried. You know, I think everybody has experienced somebody in, in their life who gets older or, or needs additional help. And, you know, it's very human to feel, you know, if you're that person, you don't want to be a burden. You don't want to cause inconvenience to others. And, of course, it's a wonderful opportunity for families and friends to take care and comfort and, and show love and support for those that they care about. But but how, how awful to tell a person you know, you could just, you know, go away, stop being an inconvenience, stop being a burden, stop being a financial hassle and worry to others. Just take these pills. You're going to be dead soon anyway. What I mean, what kind of society are we talking about? And of course, physicians don't want any part of this. And it's so sad that this bill is now trying to really pull in others to be part of this deadly, lethal, inhuman and certainly unchristian operation. Yeah, this is uh, this is outrageous. So to be competent, all it takes is just an attending practitioner to deem them competent, like a nurse. That's it. And then as far as being free from coercion, how's that determined, whether they're free from coercion? Again, you sign, you sign a form. Um, and, and again, when we're talking about people who may be older, who are obviously facing a life-threatening illness or condition, you, are, you may be vulnerable, you may be alone, you may not be alone and we all know that there are financial motives by insurance companies and unfortunately by family members or others who think they may benefit from the death of an individual. Uh, imagine the types of pressures, nefarious or not, that could be at work. And there is no, in this bill, there is no backup, there is no safeguard, there's no, no notification for the family that this is being contemplated. So, so you, know, you know, being free of coercion. When you just have an individual sign a form saying that, it's, you know, it's as meaningless as the paper is written on. Right. It's, it's worthless. You could, let's say you have someone who's 74 years old. Their term life insurance is going to expire in, uh, in a year or let's say, you know, what, six months or whatever. That's going to expire. Uh, that in and of itself is coercive for them to, uh, and to have, have a relative to be able to, to encourage them to, yeah, go ahead and take this because... You know, you've got a $2 million, $5 million life insurance policy, a $1 million life insurance policy. Uh, that, that can be very coercive in and of itself. You can have a relative involved in, in encouraging it. And this legislation, on its face, has nothing protecting this, this patient, this individual, from doing something that could, be, could, have coerce, could be very coercive uh, as long as they sign a statement saying they're not coerced. That, that makes no sense. So that's a, that's a definite concern. Thank you again, Emily, for what you're doing with PJI and standing up for and a lot of young women who are, will, and a lot of people who will be victimized um, if this kind of anti-life legislation is passed that it makes it easy for people to, uh, to kill themselves uh, prematurely and sacrifice the precious gift of life. Emily, keep up the great work and uh, thank you for all the work you're doing. Did you know that PJI preserves students' rights to share their faith and protects them from indoctrination? We also provide free resources to help promote evangelism within the public schools and educational resources to give parents legal advice for choosing an alternative to public education. Keep current on the educational landscape by signing up for our Legal Insider email newsletter at pji.org. Now, back to the Dacus Report. Uh, welcome back. Uh, we're not going to bring on our attorney who heads up our office there in the Miami area, uh, Alexander Bumbu. Alexander, thank you for joining us. 
Thank you, Brad. It's great to see you, and it's great to be back on the show. Oh, it's always a pleasure to have you on the program. You're, you're so busy down there in Florida. Uh, there's, there's so much going on. Uh, you've got a governor there that's being very proactive and, and uh, dealing with different issues. You've got a lot of pushback from some, some uh, blue blotches on the map there in Miami and Broward County and et cetera. And uh, you're in the middle of, of all of it. Uh, so uh, I appreciate uh, what you're doing. So uh, I understand that um, there's a First Amendment case uh, taking place down there. What's going on? Give us an update. Yeah, sure. So uh, this is one of our cases that we have appealed to the Florida Supreme Court. It is a case of a public evangelist who was arrested while he was preaching on a, a public sidewalk. Um, unfortunately, he was convicted in state court. His convictions were affirmed um, by the Intermediate Appellate Court, and uh, we have appealed it to the uh, Florida Supreme Court. And just uh, for short, he was uh, arrested while he was preaching on a public sidewalk that was adjacent to a high school. Uh, he was preaching to high school students uh, after school was out, not during school. After school was out, and he got arrested about six minutes after he started. And so uh, we have a case. Uh, I filed my jurisdictional brief. The state filed their response. And uh, the state Supreme Court, we're just waiting on them to see if they take the case. Okay. Now, tell me about this client. He's not a crazy, crazy guy. He's a man filled with the love of Christ, wanting to reach out to these kids, right? Yeah, correct. So he is a uh, street evangelist, uh, part-time street evangelist, and he loves the Lord Jesus Christ. He believes very much, uh, very literally, in the command that Jesus gave his disciples in Luke chapter 14 to go out into the public places and in uh, you know, the public alleys and ways and preach the gospel there. And as a public evangelist, you know, the public is his congregation and his pulpit is what? The public sidewalk, right? Um, and I think, you know, freedom of speech on a place like public sidewalk, it stands as a fundamental freedom that's protected in this country. But unfortunately, in this case... Uh, state of Florida wielded two statutes to uh, shut down protected speech on the public sidewalk. Now, I know the, the apostles, that is, you know, Jesus' disciples and the apostle Paul, they preached in public places. It's in the scripture. It's in the book of Acts. So it's not like this guy's doing something that's a major, you know, deviation from historical Christianity. Um, he's actually right in line with historical Christianity, being able to clearly, lovingly proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ and the gospel message. Uh, I, I see nothing wrong with that. Now, as far as the specifics here, he's mm -hmm. outside of a high school. What exactly happened specifically? Right. So he starts preaching to high school students after the final school bell rings. And um, he, was, he was telling them about Jesus loving them. And he was also playing a song as well. It was uh, Who You Say I Am by Hillsong. He got arrested. He was charged and convicted of two things. Number one, being within 500 feet of a school without legitimate business. And number two, uh, of disrupting a school function. And the state said that his preaching caused the parent pickup line at the school to be just a little more congested than normal, which because they said that some parents and students were actually recording him on their phones instead of paying attention to their surroundings. I don't think that makes sense, but that's what happened. So the fact that some people maybe have been watching him, observing, 
that's going to disqualify him from speaking. Effectively, that's what they're saying here. Um, what about the, the legal challenge of the 15-week abortion ban? Uh, that's uh, happened recently. I understand that, I guess, uh, a Planned Parenthood and other abortionists are, are challenging it. Uh, can you tell us more about that? Yeah, so last summer, the legislature passed and the governor signed a new pro-life law, which prohibits abortions after 15 weeks, except uh, for, they have two exceptions for um, maternal care and uh, fatal fetal abnormalities. But it's a very pro-life law, and of course, the abortionists are up in arms about it. They're challenging it in state court, arguing that it violates the privacy clause of the Florida Constitution. The Florida Supreme Court agreed to hear the challenge. Not only that, but they refused to enjoin the law, which means that this law is being enforced while this challenge to it is ongoing. Yeah. Now, normally when the Supreme Court agrees to hear something, it's often because, not always, but often because uh, they disagree with the lower court or the appellate court. I think in this case... Uh, that the reason they're taking it up because they want to nail this solid uh, with a, a case law, making it irrebuttably clear for state Supreme Courts in the future out of Florida, don't even go there. This is constitutional. Uh, this is legal. Um, and I think that that would be um, a very, very positive thing moving forward. In now, California, we've got some terrible legislation. We had a, a, something passed by the people uh, that allows for abortions all the way up to nine, the end of nine months, right before a baby's about to be born. For any reason, they can be killed. No pain medicine needed. I mean, it's just, it's sick. It's demonic. We're begging for a big earthquake out here, Alex, I'm telling you. Uh, but uh, that said, I'm very optimistic about Florida, and I think moving forward that uh, this state Supreme Court has a, has a great chance of, of coming out with a, 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 corrective, a correct opinion based on the text, based on the intent. And I think that uh, at the end of the day, it's, it's going to uh, survive. What say you? I, I agree with you. And you know what? If it survives, listen, if the 15-week abortion ban survives, I, it's possible that uh, the legislature or the people will go even further. Yeah. As, as many states already have. Uh, you know, heartbeat legislation is... is very much uh, out there, and states are adopting it and passing it. Texas, uh, I think Ohio and other states. We even have states uh, going even arguably uh, farther back than that, saying, you know, li limiting abortions and, and access to abortions. So I'm very optimistic. We're going to continue to see this moving in the right direction. Hats off to those appointments by the uh, Governor DeSantis for the state Supreme Court in Florida. And hats off to you, Alex, for the, the great work that you're doing uh, there in Florida as well. Speaking of Governor DeSantis, I understand his proposal um, that came out recently deals with new laws about masks and COVID-19 vaccines. Uh, this has uh, those of us who like freedom uh, pretty happy. What's going on? Yes. Yeah, so the governor announced a package of proposed legislation about uh, masks and COVID-19 vaccines. And before I get into the details, I'll make a comment about the title. I think this gives you an insight into Governor DeSantis' mind. He called it, quote, permanent protections against the COVID-19 biomedical security state, end quote. <laughs> so 
yeah, that's that that gives you an insight into his mind. Um, but if it's enacted into law, this legislation would do uh, several important things. Um, the most important, I think, from our perspective at PJI, is that it would make permanent some existing protections which were enacted in 2021, but are set to expire in June of this year. So in 2021, uh, the legislature passed and Governor DeSantis signed laws that permanently prohibited COVID-19 vaccine passports, uh, COVID-19 vaccine and mask requirements in all Florida schools. It prohibited masking requirements at businesses, and it permanently prohibited employers from hiring or firing based on mRNA jabs. However, that statute by its own term is set to expire in June. And so the governor's proposed law would simply extend those protections forever, permanently. Uh, you know, I, we could talk more about this, but uh, I just want to say that thank you so much for the great work you're doing there, Alex, uh, for so many people. And we love having you as a part of our staff and team at PJI. Keep up the great work. We would love the opportunity to continue to serve you. Just visit pji.org and click the Legal Insider button to sign up for our email newsletter. At PJI, we help individual employees, employers, business owners, pastors, students, citizens of every stripe through our practical resources, counsel, representation, and defense, all free of charge at pji.org. PJI is an island of stability and assurance in our ever-churning sea of legal and societal chaos. We are here for you. So folks, just remember, it's our God-given freedoms we're talking about. Now, let's choose to keep them. I'm Brad Dacus, president of the Pacific Justice Institute. Let's continue the fight for your freedoms. <laughs>